the State Archives of North Carolina. Connecting the Docs, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating true stories from around the Old North State. Welcome to Connecting the Docs, where archival documents connect us to an event in North Carolina's past. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. Our second story in the Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem series is called Ghost Ship, the Mystery of the Carol A. Deering. It's about a ship whose crew mysteriously disappeared without a trace off the coast of North Carolina's Outer Banks in 1921. We'll examine records here at the State Archives and contemporary newspaper accounts that tell part of the story. Episode 1, A Ghostly Monument. Today in the studio, I'm joined by archivists Stuart Parks, Donna Kelly, and Chris Meekins. Hello to all. Hello. 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 To set the scene for this mystery, we're going to start off with a newspaper article from the Wilmington Morning Star dated March 7, 1921. Stuart Parks, our colleague from the Outer Banks History Center, reads, The Ghost Ship of Diamond Shoals. No clue yet to mystery surrounding fate of the crew of the Carol A. Deering. A grim specter stood unseen at the helm of the bath-built schooner Carol A. Deering when she cleared Rio de Janeiro Harbor last December, riding light and winged out to sea with Norfolk port to make via the Barbados. The ship was tough and trim from tuck to keelson, sound throughout and no more than sweetened to the ways of the sea by her year off the building docks. A stout New England shipmaster, weathered to all the gales that blow, trod her quarterdeck. Above him, clean, sound canvas towered away to the five great masts that drove more than a thousand tons through the water on airs that no more than fanned the cheek. Today she is the ghost ship of Diamond Shoals, her bones bleaching in the graveyard of the Atlantic, her master and crew vanished, no man knows where or why. She was added one more page to the sea's great book of mystery paid tribute to the grim power of the deep that on occasion strikes through all men and science can do to shackle it, to claim its own. There is no record of the Deering's last voyage. She sailed full-handed, thrilling with life and power. A month later, she staggered blindly shoreward, alone by night, to ram her way to her last berth on the shoal, No hand tended her wheel. No man stood to click a sheet or spiel the wind from her tortured canvas to ease her death struggle. She was a dead ship. No living thing saw her end. There was no mark on her to show why she had been abandoned. She was apparently undamaged until the wind and sea and sand had had their will of her and slowly ripped her timber from timber on the shoal. Under the drive of her sail, the ship was buried beyond the power of tugs to pull her out. And in the weeks that have passed, Not a word has come to tell what became of the crew. Nobody has been washed up. No remnant of lifeboat or clothing come ashore. The battered hulk of the big vessel, forlorn with toppling masts and grimy, torn canvas, the hull filling with sand through open seams, stands a ghostly monument to the unconquered power of the sea. Let's talk a little bit about the ship, the crew, where she was going and where she was headed to. Okay, the ship was built in Bath, Maine in 1919 
by the G.G. Deering Company. It was to be used for commercial use. It was 255 feet long, 44 feet wide, weighing 1,879 tons. And you can envision that a, um, a football field is about 360 feet, so just shy of the length of a football field. It had five masts, which took up about 6,000 yards of sail, had a bathroom with open plumbing and cabins lit with electricity and even heated by steam. It was one of the last wooden cargo ships ever built. It was actually christened on April 4th of 1919. At first, it had the captain of, his name was William H. Merritt, and his son, Sewell Merritt, was the first mate, and there were nine crewmen aboard, and they were mostly of Danish descent. The crew description and their names are listed in the ship's articles, which were like a contract between the crew. After falling ill when they first got on their sail, Merritt and his son were um, replaced by Captain Willis Warmail and first mate Charles B. McClellan. Sailing back from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, after dropping off coal, the ship headed back up to Maine, stopped in Barbados uh, for taking on uh, liberty and supplies. And while in the Continental Cafe, first mate McClellan got drunk and complained to Captain Hugh Norton of the Augustus W. Snow that he couldn't discipline the crew without the captain interfering. Furthermore, he had to do all the navigation because Wormel's eyesight was so bad. Another captain overheard him say, I'll get that captain before we get to Norfolk, I will. He was arrested on January 9th, but Wormel bailed him out, and the ship set sail that same day. Incidentally, Captain Wormel had also complained to Norton about McClellan, so it was a bit surprising that he was willing to bail him out of jail. On January 25th, another vessel, the SS Hewitt, disappeared with a crew of 42 in the same area, with a similar course as the Deering. On January 29th at 4.30 p.m., the Deering, cruising at about five miles per hour, was sighted off Cape Lookout Lightship. Its keeper, Captain Thomas Jacobson, hailed the crew on board using a megaphone. One of the uh, sailors on board used a megaphone to announce that the ship had lost her anchors while riding out a gale at Cape Fear near Frying Pan Shoals and to notify the Deering Company. Because the radio was out, Jacobson tried to contact a steamer that had passed by. As it passed, he blew the whistle. A vessel is supposed to respond according to cruising protocol, but the ship continued on in the same direction as the Deering. It had no name on it, or the name was covered up. Sighted again on January 31st, the ship was found run aground on Diamond Shoals, an area located off the coast of Cape Hatteras and fringed with reefs. So let's talk a little bit about Diamond Shoals, because that's an important area for this story and many other stories of lost ships. Um, It's uh, gained reputation as the graveyard of the Atlantic because there are so many ships that went down around that area. Chris, you're from up in that area. You're from the coast of North Carolina, although a little bit north. A little bit north of that. Tell us a little bit about what you know about Diamond Shores. And Stuart, if you'd like to say anything too about Diamond Shoals, just jump in. Let's hear it. Sure. I mean, Diamond Shoals is a sort of notorious area located um, off the coast of Cape Hatteras, just to the south of that. So it's a big cluster of shifting underwater sandbars where water is constantly changing in depth. Um, So it could be 20 feet one day, four feet the next. Four feet the next. Yeah. Yeah. And it no clear channel through the area, so it keeps shifting 
which means you really have to have a watchman or someone very closely or just avoid the waters altogether is your best bet. Um, we do have that area located on maps and maps that cover the coastal part of the state uh, in our map collection, I believe also in the map collection of the Outer Banks History Center, if I'm not mistaken, Stuart. And you can certainly find them um, on NC Maps online and uh, check our blog post and we'll have those posted with the story. Um, it's been noted since the early 1500s for shipwrecks and some of the early maps will show ships wrecked in that area. And this is it's particularly treacherous because the Labrador stream coming from the north is right. hitting this the is, Gulf Stream. Is that right? This is that point in North Carolina where your cold water coming down the coast um, and at a deeper level, Labrador meets the Gulf Stream as it swings off the coast and goes out um, to the east. And where those two meet, there's often turbulent water. So there's a lot of power, a lot of water shifting the sands. There's so many wrecks in the 1790s. Uh, Congress authorized the building of a lighthouse. The Cape Hatteras Lighthouse was the first one. was finished in 1803. There were continual improvements over the years in the lenses, and uh, a second lighthouse was finished in 1871, along with most of the other lighthouses on the coast. Um, Stuart, a while ago you mentioned a light ship, which is different than the lighthouse. Can you just tell us what the light ships are? Because they were dotted the coast as well. Oh well, yeah, it was a, basically a, a lighthouse on on a ship. Uh, they uh, they went out to sea and. Uh, in particular around the shoals so they could warn people uh, that they were approaching these hazardous areas, that they were meant to be movable so they wouldn't be stationary. That way that the, they could move with the shoals and, and, and be uh, positioned around them. So then as Hatteras got higher, was built higher, there was less need for the ships to be out, to light ships to be on the on the water? Well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, at, at that point, everybody could see it and, and modern navigation like, got rid of the need for them. Let's go back to the Deering and the events that happened. Deering was spotted at dawn by the surfman C.P. Brady, who was on lookout duty. He was a member of the Cape Hatteras Coast Guard Station. Uh, she was found that morning with her sails a full set and all the lifeboats missing. Surfmen tried to reach the ship, but they couldn't get there because the seas were so rough. They tried to get uh, the, their powered boats out in the water, and it kept coming back to shore. Uh, so no one was able to get to the Deering for a matter of days. Uh, all that time, uh, they could didn't really see anything moving on the deck. Um, when they finally got over to it, uh, they could see that the uh, the ladder I put down the side. Like I said, the the boats were the lifeboats were missing, and the fact that nobody had come out on deck in all this time was concerning to them. So five days after the last sighting, they weren't able to get out there until February 4th, and then they go out and no signs of life. That's right. All this time, the ship is stuck on the sandbar, getting pummeled and bashed by the waves. So you figured if somebody was trying to get out of there, they'd, they'd have signaled. So one of the sources we have in our collection, of the, the collection at the Outer Banks History Center, are wreck reports. And these are created um, by... The, I guess the harbor master of the Coast Guard, who, when something happens, when they spot a ship in distress or there's uh, evidence of a wreck, they actually write a report. And it's interesting to read the handwriting. These men were actually talking about this particular ship. Chris, um, it, it's it's called Report of Assistance Rendered, and it's from Coast Guard Station Number 183, and that was, was written in January 31st. So this is the first record we actually see of something happening in our records, the first record we have where something has happened. Can you read from that report? It's a little bit long. 
At 6.30 a.m., January 31, 1921, C.P. Brady, surfman number four on lookout, and Andrew Gray, surfman number five, returning from South Patrol, sighted a five-masted schooner with all sails set, ranging about the northwest point of the Southwest Diamond Shoals. The surfman immediately notified me, and I investigated the matter at once, and as there was a heavy mist and somewhat smoky over the shoals, I was unable to see the schooner only at times. However, at 7.15 a.m., I notified by telephone stations numbers 182, 183, 184, and 186 of the situation and to stand by ready for action at 7.30 a.m. I telephoned the above stations that I was quite sure the schooner was aground on the northwest point, southwest Diamond Shoals, and that I was proceeding to the scene of the wreck. And after being washed ashore several times, although using both engines and care, I finally succeeded in crossing the off bar and proceeded seaward, arrived at scene of wreck at 11.30 a.m., and made several attempts to get near enough to get her full name. The schooner's boat was gone and no signs of life on board. I proceeded back to shore, landing at South Point of Beach at 1.10 p.m. I immediately returned to station and notified District Superintendent of Operations, also Division Commander, via radio, and Coast Guard Aviation. From February 1st to 3rd, stood by ready for action when the sea and tide went down so as to board schooner. February 4th, left beach 7.30 a.m. and proceeded to scene of wreck and at 10 a.m. went alongside of schooner. There were no signs of life whatever on board the wreck. After obtaining the name of the stranded schooner, Carol A. Deering of Bath, Maine, I returned to station and notified district superintendent and division commander, Walter L. Barnett, acting keeper. So, Stuart, these um, the way these are written, it's pretty. They're pretty brief, and they're just meant really to capture fact, right? I mean, there's nothing lyrical or interesting about these. Oh, the wreck reports. The wreck reports. Oh yeah, they're they're to capture the information. I mean, uh, at this time, of course, you got to remember, uh, this is the graveyard of the Atlantic. There's a lot of uh, shipwrecks uh, out there, and the, there's no room for you know uh, waxing on about it. They had to be. You had to get the the, the specifics, the the ship's name, who it belonged to, the weight, what it was carrying, how many people were aboard, how many people were rescued, how many people were lost. So uh, they're very factual documents. So talk a little bit about the ones that we've got at their Outer Banks History Center. I know we have a collection of them and how they're used, how do people use them and what, what how do they help? Well, they uh, they help in a variety of ways. We get all kinds of people in there uh, researching them. Uh, originally, they came from uh, David Stick. Uh, he used them to write his uh, book, Graveyard of the Atlantic, when he donated his material to the state. Uh, they were part of the, the package deal. Uh, or they are the, the reports of uh, shipwrecks. Uh, they got all of the material for it. So if uh, people were interested in uh, certain people who were in a shipwreck or it came aboard, you can find that information out there. Or uh, we have a lot of genealogical research, uh, people who are related to uh, life-saving uh, service members or Coast Guard members, and they can track what they did that way. Uh, we also have divers uh, who are interested in diving on these wrecks or who might find a wreck that is uh, unclaimed. Once again, there's a, there's a lot of wrecks out there, and they can use the information uh, that are in these wreck reports to kind of pinpoint 
either the wreck that they're on or the wreck that they've discovered uh, to get to help get a better name for it. So there's a whole lot of information in there for a variety of people. Um, and we have them arranged by uh, saved ships, lost ships, uh, undesignated outcomes of ships. So, um, yeah, not all of them went down uh, gruesomely. Some of them were actually like pulled back from the, the, the sands and, and refloated and put back into service. So there are some happy endings. Yeah. Not for this one, but there. It's good to know that there are. Um, so the, we just read. Chris just read from the most extensive report that we have. But Donna, you've um, we've got some other reports too from uh, the the wreck reports. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, um, there were three other um, stations that responded to the call to go out and help. They were, um, and so the keeper C.R. Hooper of the Big Kennekeet Station stated that the ship was, quote, driven up high on the shoal in a boiling bed of breakers with all sails standing as if she had been abandoned in a hurry. And then keeper J.C. Gaskell of Creed's Hill stated, quote, she had been stripped of all lifeboats and no sign of life on board. Crew had apparently left in own boats as ladder was hanging overside, end quote. And we also have another article from the Wilmington Morning Star that was dated February 1st when it was first, after it was first seen. It's the title of it says, Schooner Deering Wrecked Off the Hatteras Shoals. And then it just reads, Lifeguards tonight abandoned attempts to reach the five-masted schooner, Carol A. Deering, which the winds are driving on the beach off Hatteras Shoals. The guards, despite a heavy sea, were able during the day to get within a quarter of a mile of the schooner and to ascertain that there were no survivors aboard. The schooner first was seen Sunday night in a stranded condition with all sails set. The crew is believed to have been taken off by a passing vessel. How they knew that, I don't know. That was just one of the first indications of the speculation of what people were thinking about it. little guessing on the part of maybe of the reporter or something, you know. We get this. We get, get this a lot in, in these early papers. Stuart, I'm going to have you read because there's another article on February 4th, and uh, it talks a little bit about – it gives a little more information about what was found and who well, found it. A couple more with. days later, they'd have yeah. some time to review things. Okay. Can you read that for us? Oh, yeah. Wilmington Morning Star, February 4th, 1921. Think crew perished in ship's lifeboat. No word of men who were aboard big ship grounded on Diamond Shoals. Everything indicates that the ten or more men composing the crew of the big five-masted schooner, believed to be the Carol A. Deering, that grounded on Diamond Shoals Sunday night and is now going to pieces, perished while leaving the stranded craft in the small boats, according to the story told by the officers of the Coast Guard Cutter Seminole upon the return of the cutter to this port yesterday after a fruitless trip to the position of the large sailing vessel. Lieutenant Commander J.J. Hudson, executive officer of the Seminole, says the crew of the life-saving station at Cape Hatteras also believes that the schooner's complement have been drowned. No word has been heard from the sailors since the ship went ashore five days ago. Commander Hudson said yesterday that the cutter left this port for Diamond Shoals Monday afternoon and arrived at Hatteras Cove Tuesday morning. The stranded schooner was seen aground on the shoals, but the sea was so rough that neither the Seminole nor the small boats could get near enough to the craft to make any attempt to save the ship. Practically every sail was set, but the small boats were out of their davits, indicating that the crew had left. Seas were breaking over the schooner's stern and her name and home port could not be read. There was no wreckage from the ship by which she might be identified. 
After laying in Hatteras Cove for some time, the officers of the Seminole found it necessary to return to Wilmington, as the boilers were found to need immediate attention. It is believed by Commander Hudson that a wrecking ship from Norfolk will make an attempt to salvage the schooner as soon as the sea subsides. Just as soon as the Seminole reached port, work was begun on the boilers to put them in condition so that the cutter might answer an emergency call. It is thought that this work will be completed in four days. That's our story this week. In next week's episode, we'll see what becomes of the Deering wreck and explore the fate of her crew. Connecting the Docs podcast is created by staff members at the State Archives of North Carolina. Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randon McRae, Chris Meekins, and our superb engineer, Tom Norman Lee. For a look at the documents we discussed in this story, visit our History for All the People blog at ncarchives.wordpress.com and click on Connecting the Docs podcast. Thanks for listening.